um, I, I want to shamelessly promote that you get on our website or you get a CD copy um, of, of the previous messages because that's really going to help you understand Luke chapter 15 and the thrust of God's heart a little bit better. You're kind of coming in halfway through the series, and that's just fine, but if you really want to kind of grasp what's happening, let me encourage you, you can check it out on our website. You can download it in MP3 and if you do that kind of stuff, or if you're not into the technology side of things, just grab a CD. I think that there's some that are available out on our communication table. Those are completely free. It's just part of the ministry that, that we do here. So there's some fantastic details. Hopefully you and I have kind of caught on to some things. Let me quickly review just a couple things. Jesus has been talking to a crowd of Pharisees and scribes um, who are more than upset, at least to, to say the least, because Jesus has been spending time with people who they deem unworthy of redemption or anything else for that matter. Um, the Pharisees had a, a label for people that they didn't like, people that were um, irreligious, people that didn't attend church, people, or, well, synagogue at that time, people that didn't want to have anything to do with the Jewish religion. They called them the people of the land. And they had such an attitude towards the people of the land that they thought that God actually had joy in obliterating them rather than in redeeming them. And so the people who should have known what God was about totally didn't have an idea of what God was about. And that's kind of what makes these Pharisees and scribes so absolutely angry. One of the things that we probably miss a lot of times as we read Luke chapter 15, we miss how absolutely ticked off the Pharisees and scribes would have been at Jesus for him teaching these parables. They just would have been absolutely indignant for him to make such kind of, of remarks and kind of teachings. They would have thought, this guy just doesn't get it. And so, we need to understand that Jesus was kind of turning the tide of their way of thinking if they actually change their way of thinking at all. Let me just kind of talk about repentance, because repentance seems to be the theme that's taking place in all of Luke chapter 15. In fact, the theme of, of the gospel of Luke is uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I've given it to you kind of on your handout as a, as a memory verse. That the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, God came to redeem us, and God takes great joy over repentance. And so, uh, last week, we spent a good bit of our time together talking about what repentance looks like, because repentance is so much more than saying, I'm sorry. We, we think at times that, um, that an apology is sometimes warranted, but, you know, you can say things with your mouth that you really don't mean in your heart. I told you last week about my kiddos and how when one of them beats on the other, they can say they're sorry. We can make them say that they're sorry, but that doesn't mean that they're sorry inside their heart. And the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We can say to God that I'm sorry, I repent, but unless you see the dynamic and the nature of biblical repentance, we need to ask, have I really repented? So let me kind of give you, just by way of reminder, if you were here last week, a refresher. If you weren't here, this is, will bring you a little bit up to speed. Repentance is, involves two main components. So the first component is a turning away from sin. You have to forsake your sin. You have to have inside of you 
a deep sense of sorrow. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not talking about I'm sad that this happened, or I'm sad that this happened, or I'm mourning for the loss of a loved one. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about spiritual truths. Mourning our sin. And the only way that you and I can mourn our sin is when God supernaturally reveals to us the degree and the magnitude of our sin, it becomes disgusting to us. When, when we look at our sin nature and we look at specific sins that we may commit, our sin becomes absolutely just atrocious. And that is the first step of repentance. There's a sincere, deep sorrow for that sin, which the next step then becomes confession that we confess to God that we have a sin nature, or at least we initially had a sin nature, and, and, we, and then we confess to God that, that I am sinful and I need forgiveness. And when I sin specific sins, I need forgiveness of that. That's where uh, in 1 John, we're talking about that in our Sunday school class, How to Study the Bible. Um, in 1 John, John writes that if any of you sin and you confess your sin, that Jesus is faithful and just and he'll forgive you of your sin. When you f- sin, not only do you need to ask forgiveness to even enter into the kingdom of heaven, but then when we sin after we become Christians, we still need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And so our sins uh, necessitate confession. We must confess to God. And then the next step in turning away from sin is forsaking that sin. What does forsaking mean? It means just stop doing it. We choose for, um, we choose to walk away from that sin. It may even be that you need to make restitution. Listen, if, if you steal a thousand dollars You might genuinely be sorry for that sin down deep in your heart. You may even go to that person. You may may even confess, listen, I stole $1,000 from you. Will you please forgive me? And and they may be gracious and extend you that gracious forgiveness, which is uh, totally in their court. But then you need to do what? You need to make restitution. You need to somehow find a way for that $1,000 to be given back. That's part of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is, is, is shown in how we act, in how we live. Now, listen, here's the same, here's another thing. You need to turn towards God. Turn away from sin and turn towards God. Well, what does that involve? That involves finally choosing to obey God by faith. When you turn towards God, you really do it out of a sense of faith. You, you believe that, that God loves you so much that He has really your best interests in mind. And you believe that by faith because that's what the Scriptures teach. And, you know, there's nothing super concrete that you can really grasp at times. And I, I think that faith is fascinating because Moses, if you think about the story with the burning bush, and Moses is confronted by God speaking through this burning bush in the Old Testament, and, and he says, well, how in the world will I know that what you're telling me to do is the right thing that I need to do? And he says, well, you'll know when you come back here and you worship me on this mountain. That's when you'll know. I think 
that's not the answer that we want to hear. That's not the answer that Moses wanna, wanted to hear. It's, in other words, he had to make that step of faith that he had to obey God, he had to do the things that God wanted him to do, and the confirmation that that was what God really wanted him to do came later. Oftentimes, we have it flipped otherwise to where we want the confirmation up front, then we want to obey. The nature of faith is such that we have to choose to obey God first, and then the confirmation comes. So, as with the two first parables, this lesson, it has a superficial meaning. Remember, we told you how there's layers of meanings in parables. That's the nature of of parables. So, it has a superficial meaning, and anyone, pretty much anyone, can easily understand the parables, at least the, the surface layers. But then there's these things that I call hidden layers. They're not hidden as in God doesn't want us to know, but they're things that are left for us to see with our spiritual eyes. They're they're spiritual truths that are hidden to those who don't yet know God. You say, well, how can you prove that to me? Well, Jesus told His disciples. His disciples came to Him and they asked, so tell me, why in the world are you speaking to everybody in parables? It seems like you're speaking a little bit in enigmas. And what he said in Matthew 13, 13 is, this is why do I speak to them in parables? Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's why we need to have as our prayer that God gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. The eyes to see the spiritual things and the ears to hear what he truly wants us to see or wants us to hear. Because anybody can look at the surface level. That, that anybody can see that. But to see those truths that God wants to reveal to us, that takes a little bit more prayer, that takes a little bit more time of study. And what ends up happening is the pride of the religious, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. And and listen, there's even those who are religious today. They think that they've got the Bible down pat. They think that they know the stories, and at the end of the day, when you get to talking with them, um, they might know the story, but they don't know what God is really after. Reflects the, the prideful heart, and that prideful heart blinds people. Just when you think that you've got it, God's going to probably put a twist in there. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees hate Jesus so much, because they truly can't see and they truly can't hear. While Christianity may be classified as a religion, true Christianity is a faith that not only guides our external actions, but a faith that also classifies the inside of who we are. You know what makes us a Christian is not the fact that you come here on a Sunday morning. Listen, this is super value. Hebrews 10.25, forsake not the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing, right? We all know that those folks who are in the habit of not attending the, the assembly of the saints, right? But that's not what makes you Christian. What classifies you as a Christian or a Christ follower is what God has done on the inside, Right? It's not the outside of you that determines your eternal destiny. It's the inside of you, that relationship. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to in Luke chapter 15 in all three parables. 
So before um, we read the parable this morning, I'd like to make a quick note uh, about the focus of the parable. As I mentioned um, quickly when we started, especially in our Western world, and maybe even because our editors have put at the top of uh, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, they've, they've put up there the parable of the prodigal son. We focus... We tend to focus, and we think that it's all about that son who went away, that rebellious son who did all those horrible things that he shouldn't have done, and when he came back, um, his father embraced him. You know, that's the surface level. That's true to understand it. It's fair understanding. We'll talk about yet this yet this morning, but that's not what the whole parable is about. In fact, that's not what the people really would have heard as the original audience of Jesus. There's three characters, and we need to pay attention to all three main characters. There's the father, there's the younger son. Now, the younger son is the one that you and I call the prodigal. But for the sake of our study, and for a sake of understanding this parable, maybe in a, in a new and a fresh way, let's call him the younger son. Let's, let's call him what Jesus called him, in the parable. And then you have the older son. So you have a father, and he has two sons. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Tale of Two Sons, which is really the story about the prodigal son, but I really appreciated his, his title for it because it's really, that's what this is about. It's a tale of two sons, and it's about the extravagant grace that this father goes through and how uh, how absolutely this father redeems this young, younger son in ways that are just below honorable. In fact, they're shameful in Jesus' culture. Now, we don't see that in our modern culture, nor do we see that in our English text, but I'm going to be glad to point those things out as we talk about the story in the next couple weeks. So, let's look at the parable this morning. If you have your Bible with you, Luke chapter 15 beginning in verse 17, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided, he divided his property between them. Now listen, as we're going to see here in the coming weeks, that was absolutely not just shameful for the younger son, but it was stupid of the, of the father. And so we're going to talk about that detail. At least that's how it was viewed in Jesus' culture. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need, so that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Listen, we miss this here, but we miss it in our culture. We think, uh, well, he's starting to make a turn, but doing that to a Gentile, a Jew being hired out to Gentiles just... Not, not a kosher thing. So he went and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Again, a horrible thing for a Jew. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Now, verse 17, I at least can pick it up now on the screen. 
But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, notice in there, by the way, that nowhere in there he's called the prodigal. It was the younger son, now the story of the older son, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, right? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Kind of a simple parable, at least we would think it's pretty simple, and usually the way that we, at least on the surface level, understand this parable, and a lot of times the way that I hear this parable taught, which is a fair way, is it focuses on the younger brother, it focuses on him going away, squandering his father's property, his father's inheritance, and then coming back home, and then his father doing this crazy gracious thing, this, just a, a degree of grace that is so difficult to comprehend, that he gets the best robe, which probably would have been the father's robe, by the way. He gets the family ring, which was a signet ring, which in, uh, signified that he had every bit as much authority as everyone else that was in leadership in the family. And we've talked about signet rings before on Sunday mornings, that if you were going to put something legal and binding, that you needed to have a signet ring. It was kind of like your, your signature. It showed that you were the one that had had the authority to do what was being said. And so he restores him completely. Not only does he restore him completely, but then he throws this crazy big party, and the older brother comes back and is indignant. And what we tend to do is we tend to focus on the younger brother. And that's just kind of 
how we tend to teach it in the Western world. It's a fascinating parable, and I think it's fascinating because you have the people, uh, you have a parable about honor and shame, and really those are the components that we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks, is because there is significant shame that's being displayed all over. We miss it because we're removed thousands of years from the culture. What the father did would have been perceived in his culture and in his time, we'll talk about the details as to why in the coming weeks, would have been perceived as extravagantly shameful. The fact that he gave him the inheritance ahead of time, the Pharisees and the scribes would have thought, what an idiot. What, what kind of guy is this that he's doing this to his sons? You know, you should expel your son according to the laws of their time. You should not even have anything to do with him, and yet he gives him this. That was stupid on part of the father. And then what does he do? He waits for him to come back. And then he sees him a long way off, and then he runs toward him. And he, that's very shameful for a respected elder to do in Jesus' time. We'll talk about those details as to why in the coming weeks. He runs to him him, and he does all these other things. There's shame everywhere. And then what the older brother does, they also would perceive that as shameful the way that he acts. But then we see this thing about honor. We see this, this thing about honor as to what is honorable and what is not honorable. And Jesus is telling this, ter- this parable of honor and shame to the gatekeepers, as it were, in that day, of honor and shame. You know who the gatekeepers of honor and shame were? The Pharisees and scribes. And what Jesus is doing is he is strategically and brilliantly deconstructing their idea of honor and shame and, and giving us a proper understanding of what honor and shame really looks like in the ex- extravagant way that God would have redeemed us. Jesus' people uh, the, the people of that time would have really understood honor and shame. It was very honorable culture. In fact, today, if you go to the Middle East, you'll find that honor and respect are just benchmarks of society in the East. Now, it's kind of sad that in our culture, we've kind of lost some of those benchmarks of honor and respect. And, but in, in the Middle East that they have that a very concrete understanding of what honor and respect is. And if you've dishonored your father or dishonored your parents, well, then there's consequences depending upon which culture that you live in in the East uh, that could go from anything from being expelled from the family to being struck down, all kinds of different things like that, depending on the, the magnitude of the disrespect. The main point of the parable is to teach about redemption and repentance. Remember, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 15, these three parables are to teach us about repentance and they're to teach us about the great joy that God has when someone genuinely biblically repents, when someone repents in such a way that God wants us to repent, rather than just saying, I'm sorry. The nature of the parable is such that on the surface layer, it reveals that just like a father would rejoice over a wayward son returning home, so God rejoices over the repentance 
of one person. We get that. That's the very surface level. Level. This is a true understanding. It's a fair understanding of the passage, but it's not the only way that it would have been understood. We correctly see how, despite whatever we've done, God, God rejoices over our repentance. Did you know that? No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, when we repent, as we were talking about the degree of repentance, God rejoices and celebrates. God throws a party over our repentance. The angels in heaven rejoice over the genuine repentance of one single sinner. And when we as Christians, when we sin and when we repent, God rejoices over our repentance. Why? Because what that does is it draws that relationship tighter and closer to Him. That's what, that's what repentance is about. Repentance is an avenue by which we can be redeemed and reunited with God. That's why repentance is valuable for the Christian life, not only with God the Father, but repentance is also valuable in our relationships with each other, our, our horizontal relationships. When we repent and when we confess our sins to one another, as the book of James says, we might be healed. We may be healed. That's what the book of James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Why are we doing that? So that any barriers between the relationships that we have with each other would be removed and our intimacy would be increased. So we correctly see those things. Listen, um, I would imagine that if you're a parent that has a son or a daughter that's living far from God, that is to say they're living a life that's leading them towards destruction, perhaps ultimate damnation, you, you identify with that father, right? If you have a child that is, is living in such a manner that you know that they're headed towards destruction, that they're making the wrong choices, that they're headed down that path that could lead to, to condemnation and ultimate damnation, they could possibly spend their eternity to hell, in hell, you feel for that father. You identify with him. You would, if your son or daughter would suddenly come and repent, oh, the rejoicing that you would have in your heart. You identify with his predicament. You'd be willing to go to extravagant means. Perhaps you're rightly praying on your knees, petitioning God the Father to intercede, to restore your child. Maybe, maybe you are that wayward son or daughter. Maybe, maybe you identify with that wayward son or daughter. You know that you've been to places that you shouldn't be. You, you know that you've squandered the things that God has given you. You know that you've done things that are far outside of God's will. And, and maybe you, you're at a point, or maybe you haven't got there yet, to where you see that, you know what? I've tried things my way. You know, what's that song, I did it my way, right? And what's unfortunate is that how many of us take that American attitude and that American ideal of doing it our own way, and we let go of God's ways. God has very specific ways that He wants us to live. And maybe you're at a place just like that prodigal son where you need to turn and return to your heavenly Father. Oftentimes what I've found is that there's a breaking point, typically. 
You know, we, we, want, we want people to repent sooner rather than later, but oftentimes the reality of it is, is it's not until they hit a very hard bottom that repentance takes place, and that's where the younger son was in. He was in a predicament that you just really couldn't get any lower before he finally made that turn to return to his father. So maybe you've been the recipient of this kind of love and grace. In fact, if you think about it, all of us who are Christians have been recipients of this kind of grace. That's the story. The story is, is we were the younger sons. We're the ones who were, rebe- were rebellious, and yet, while we were still sinners, God loved us, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was Christ who reached out to us to redeem us and bring us near. It wasn't us. It was God's great redemptive love. We are the prodigal son. All of us who have been redeemed by God's grace. It was God's extravagant love that caused Jesus to die on that cross. But in a simplistic way, that's kind of who we focus on, is we focus on that younger son. But our focus shouldn't be just on the rebellious son who left home. Coming weeks, I want to focus on the older son. I want to focus on the father. I want to talk about the young. I want to talk about the culture. And this is where, you know, were you ever in grade school and you ever thought, when in the world is this history lesson ever going to be re- relevant for me? For those of you who are teachers, I really feel for you because I'm sure that you have many students in your classes thinking, when am I ever going to need this subject or these things that are taught to me? This is when knowing the culture of Jesus' time is extravagantly going to help us understand the message that Jesus is talking to us here in the Bible because we're going to see the extravagant love and oh, how he loved us because of this parable. So let me kind of close in giving you three take-home thoughts that came to my mind. Maybe you can think about some other things. Well, before I do that, let me say this. I've got ahead of myself. The simplest and most direct message that we generally understand from this parable is the joy that the father has for the return of his his, uh, rebellious son. Now my take home. I guess there's a placement that we can associate ourselves with in this parable. We could ask, so where am I? I mean, right now, do I have a son or a grandchild, a son or a daughter or a grandchild who is far from God? And if so, maybe I identify with the Father. And and if so... What am I doing to help draw that child back to his heavenly father? If you were going to find yourself in the shoes 
of someone, who would you be in the shoes of? Would you be in the son of the or in the shoes of the father, the older brother, who's seeing people around him making life changes for Christ, and yet you have bitterness in your heart and doubt of any change? By the way, the older brother were the scribes and the Pharisees, really the Jewish people. Younger brother represents the Gentiles. Do you identify with the rebellious son who, after being far from God, returns safely into his arms? Do you put yourselves in the shoes of that father who, having a rebellious family member, do you longingly look for them to return? Or or perhaps you even identify with Jesus' audience, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who have bitterness in their heart when they're seeing people make life change. Are are you the one who's skeptical of somebody who says, you know what, I want to follow Jesus? Or you think, yeah, I know where you're going to be in a couple weeks. Because that's a hard attitude issue. If, if, If you're not rejoicing with them and then helping them to follow Jesus then you're not helping them follow Jesus. If you have in your heart, oh yeah, that person, they're not going to make it. They won't fit the muster. You could be in a dangerous place with your heart. Here's another thing. Do you have an attitude of pride? Always looking for things to condemn. Have you ever been around folks like that? snickety people who, who always have, I, I mean, it could be a most awesome day, and they would find the lemon, and they would focus on the lemon. And isn't it fascinating? I was talking with several people recently, said, isn't it fascinating in our culture that you could have the greatest day, and one thing goes maybe not according to your plan, kind of throws it on tilt, and all of a sudden you've got a bad day. How's your day been? Oh, you know. It's like, are you kidding everything else? If that disproportionately throws us on tilt, then we need to really find out where our attitude and our heart and our minds are. Because I'm concerned that there are things that, that people are just so quick to condemn, and we shouldn't be. There are those who think that they're spiritually above others and place themselves as the gatekeepers of honor and shame. This is right, this is wrong, and if you don't do this, you're going to hell. I often think, find it's their attitude that betrays them, revealing the real condition of their heart. Usually, have you ever been around somebody and said, well, I'm not one to complain, but, and then there's this list. I'm not one to complain, but, and then there's this list. And it's like, so, I know that you're saying I'm not one to complain, but it seems like that's what you do. So, so really, you know, where's your heart attitude then? We guise it. We have all these wonderful ways that we just want to soften it and make it look nicer, but at the end of the day, it's still just ugly. So we need to be careful to protect and to guard our hearts through Christ Jesus. It's right for us to call sin, sin. It's right for us to condemn sinful actions. It is wrong for us to have a condemning attitude. It is wrong for us to have a condemning attitude. Here's the last thing. We who are currently saved 
do we have a prayer list, basically? I, I mean, I'm asking this question. Who are you currently praying for to be restored to right relationships with God? You, you know, I, I find it fascinating that we have long prayer lists for people's healings. And that's, that's, that's good. We should. But then, how long is our prayer list for people's spiritual conditions? Shouldn't that be longer than our prayer list for people's healings? Because let's face it, if they're healed, you're still going to die. You know? It's like Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. The scribes and the Pharisees want to kill him again. And it's like, wait a second. Don't you think that if Jesus raised him from the dead once, he can do it again? And Lazarus is probably thinking, you know, all these things about praying for healings, they're so temporal. I, I, think, that, I think that we should pray for healings, and I do. I, I regularly pray for those who have physical needs and who ask me to pray for them with ever, whatever needs. But you know what's higher on my list? To pray for someone's spiritual condition because that's going to last for eternity. The things that are here in our bodies, let's face it, our bodies are always decaying. It's a biblical promise. It's a consequence of the sin. Our bodies are going to get weaker should the Lord tarry. Our bodies are going to have all kinds of ailments. It's the consequences of sin in the Garden of Eden. But something that's more important to be praying for is someone's spiritual eternity. And so I guess just proportionately, what are you praying for? Are you praying for restored relation? Do you have a prayer list? I have a prayer list of people that, that I am praying specifically um, that God would work in their lives. I know that some people who, who that their lives are just outside of what Christ wants. And I'm praying that God would restore them and that God would get into their hearts and into their minds so that their relationship with God would be made right. That's more important to me than praying for physical needs because that's going to last eternity. And so I guess I just want to ask you, do you have a prayer list? Because if you have a prayer list, if you have a prayer list for people's spiritual conditions in their eternal relationship with Christ, it changes your attitude about what you pray about, and it changes your attitude of how you rejoice over people repenting. It changes your attitude towards everything, because what it does is it shifts us, our focus off of things of this world into things of God's perspective and through God's eyes. God is about redeeming us and restoring us. That is much more important than my current physical condition, my eternal lasting relationship with Him. So do you have a prayer list? If you don't, why not? Are you praying for others? To me, that's kind of just a, a fitting end for us to, to think about in relation of how we talked about the parable today. Listen, in the next couple of weeks, I'm excited to share with you, um, barring any um, surprises of a coming baby in the next week or so, I have Pastor Mark kind of on standby just so I can call him up and saying, hey, baby's here, so I guess you're on. So in the next few weeks, the plan is, and depending on what Elijah, when he wants to show himself and when the Lord decides to reveal him, um, He's not the Elijah to come, by the way. Um, 
that in the next couple of weeks, I'm looking forward to sharing with you the details of the culture and the details of how that shows us how extravagant God loves us and also kind of where that older brother and younger brother really were in light of how the Pharisees in the crowd would have uh, interpreted them. Let me invite the worship team up.